Welcome to a new episode of Riada, a Wilson Center podcast about entrepreneurship in the MENA region. I'm Marissa Khurma, Director of the Middle East Program here at the Wilson Center, and my co-host is Ahmad Shawa of Howdy Arabia from Jordan. Today, we zoom into one of the main features of the workforce challenge in the MENA region. In our Wilson Center report, Ready for Work, an analysis of workforce asymmetries in the Middle East and North Africa, my co-author Alex Farley and I look at the workforce formula from both the supply and demand sides in the region. On the supply side, the challenge is defined by the skills mismatch, an archaic education system, and much needed reforms, particularly in the technical and vocational training sectors. And on the demand side, the private sector, the need to strengthen entrepreneurship ecosystems, and of course, access to finance. So this month, we will focus on key stakeholders in the MENA region who are laser focused on closing this skills mismatch or gap. One such organization is IDRAK, a massive open online course platform and a key initiative of the Queen Rania Foundation. So our guest today is Shirin Yaqub, the CEO of IDRAK since 2017. Shirin leads IDRAK's skilling strategy, preparing youth for the digital economy. And she's also a strong advocate for education reform and the creation of digital Arab open education resources. Shirin, the work that you're doing and advocating for is truly music to my ears. So a very warm welcome to the Riyadh podcast. I'd love to know more. Thank you. Um, I'd love to know more about your personal journey um, with education reform. Why are you passionate about it? Why are you advocating for it? And of course, a little bit more about Idrak's genesis and where it is today. So what's the story? Thank you so much for this great opportunity to be with you and the wonderful team. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to share my story, which pretty much started when I was in high school. I was privileged to go to the Jubilee School for the Gifted and Talented. And from there, I started seeing how high quality education can transform lives by having access to um, non-traditional ways of learning and you know, uh, expanding my horizons be beyond the textbook with extracurricular activities and a focus on character development. This was further deepened when I received a scholarship to study in the U.S. and I saw firsthand how uh, my career or journey at the university enabled me to explore different topics because I went to a liberal arts school, a college, and I was able to expose myself to different topics before I even declared a major. Coming back to the region, I wanted to pay this forward and I wanted to make sure that I'm engaged in purposeful work. So I started working in donor-funded capacity building programs for youth across Jordan and then trying to link them with uh, employers through organizing job fairs and whatnot. And I always felt that, you know, we do have so much talent, but it's just that the inequality of opportunity and the access to programs that really give our youth the skills they need to walk the last 10 
steps <laughs> in order to get jobs because oftentimes with youth we see you know with huge unemployment rates here in the region being the highest in the world and uh, you know 60% of unemployment is actually among university graduates so they oftentimes spend years in order to get their first job so I was always wondering what is it that's missing and how can we prevent this from happening and I was always um, you know, following the skills gap and how we can address it. And then I had the golden opportunity of moving to Idraq as part of, you know, uh, the early team members joining and founding the platform uh, back in 2014 and um, uh, today leading it as well uh, to scale that kind of effort in the sense that we can reach the mass and leverage technology in uh, in order to do that. Today, Idraq reaches 6 million learners across the MENA region, and we are seeing uh, just how much impact uh, high-quality learning experiences in Arabic that the platform offers uh, changes you know, the trajectory of opportunities and access to better life opportunities among youth. Thank you so much. This is truly impressive. Um, I didn't realize that the reach has has progressed to the level that it is today. And of course, as a um, a main initiative by the Queen Rania Foundation, and and knowing the work that um, Her Majesty Queen Rania has led, uh, not just in Jordan but the Mena region and worldwide, um, it seems that you're also a few steps ahead in in launching something online. And then here we are, you know, two years into the pandemic, realizing how important digital platforms are. Um, so this is this is truly, um, uh, I think, a a unique uh, a unique platform and a unique idea. So congratulations to you and to all the team, and of course to uh, Queen Rania for leading uh, leading this moving forward. Thank you so much. Her Majesty's vision has been absolutely avant-garde. I mean, uh, in 2013, when you know MOOCs started surfacing on uh, globally, uh, immediately the, the vision was there, and action was uh, coupled with that to make sure that this also comes to the Arab world, and we do have our own platforms. Uh, offering open online learning in Arabic that is of high quality with the potential of empowering youth across the MENA region with impactful and meaningful education that's in time, relevant, contextualized uh, to empower them to access better life opportunities. Thank you. Ahmad, over to you. Yeah, like you said, it's uh, it's amazing that the vision was there early on at the beginning of, of this amazing phenomenon and the action and the follow-through. I mean, Idraq is one of the, it's probably the, the leading Arabic uh, MOOC out there. Uh, how do you guys keep it uh, at, on the edge, uh, on the cutting edge of the technology and the tools, optimization of results compared to, uh, you know, the, the bigger MOOCs out there, the global ones like Coursera? So we do not see ourselves competing with any of these platforms, especially that we are at the end of the day, a nonprofit. Uh, platform 
platform uh, and uh, we are focused on a specific niche or a segment of learners and those are the Arabic speaking learners. So what we try to do is to make ourselves the most relevant as possibly as possible to uh, as, uh, as much as possible to our learners in the MENA region, trying to understand the context of our uh, challenges, the skills gap and the need we uh, want to focus on. So uh, just recently over the past two years, we, uh, we are double clicking on uh, skilling for the digital economy through a series of programs, whether they are standalone courses or specializations or micro-credentials through which we are able to cater to uh, these needs. And we obviously identify them through our research and also speaking with HR and learning and development managers uh, in different companies and sectors, and also constantly surveying our learners on what they want to learn and uh, what kind of programs they want to have on the platform. So we try to be as, uh, cost, as you know, learner-centered as possible in terms of uh, constantly tracking the data, understand, analyzing it, understanding the behavior uh, of our learners. Where do they get stuff? How can we improve our instructional design, our user experience, or UI, UX, our technology in order to better serve them? And, you know, with years of doing this, then we have uh, you know ample of data to help us make data-driven decisions that are geared towards uh, the specific needs of our learners. And as and I, as I said, we work closely also with partners. So not just corporates and companies, but also universities, uh, subject matter experts. Um, and donors in order to bridge gaps in the region where we can make the most impact. And if I may follow up, because you mentioned the digital skills, and of course, uh, those are certainly probably on the top five list of skills of, for the future. But what are some of the other skills that are being identified um, by the employers or by the other different sectors that you're talking to? Um, and, uh, and how are you also working to fill this gap with some of these skills? Thank you very much for bringing this up because, uh, you know, the, digital, the skilling for the digital economy doesn't necessarily mean that we skill in the technical aspects, specifically those related to technology. This is uh, uh, something that we always say we follow a holistic approach for that. So we combine the pathways we offer for technical skill, skills like programming, computer science, or uh, sales with uh, power skills or soft skills, uh, as they previously used to call it, uh, in order to make sure that the human skills are there in terms of emotional intelligence, uh, you know, stress management, conflict management, because with automation and digitalization, human skills become even more uh, important and necessary. So uh, critical thinking, leadership skills, team management, these are all skills that we are seeing a great interest in. And uh, the, the third pillar would be English language learning. Uh, mm -hmm. So although we are primarily focused on creating content in Arabic, but we also see the importance of building the proficiency in English uh, for the MENA region youth 
One, because we have in the MENA region the lowest English proficiency level globally. And two, because we see that oftentimes it's a job requirement. So if you have better uh, English proficiency level, then you are more competitive uh, for certain jobs. And this becomes even more important when you want to engage in the digital economy or remote work or the gig economy. So, uh Ahmed, if I may just add one thing uh, here in, in response. Uh, I love that the framing of soft skills is now power skills because that is uh, truly what they are. Um, uh, in addition to my role at the Wilson Center, I also teach a leadership class at uh, Georgetown. And it's always uh, a challenge in the beginning to explain why these skills are needed. Um, it takes the whole semester to get there. But um, we refer to them in our reports as essential skills, but I really love the power skills framing. I think that's um, that makes them even more powerful. So thank you for that frame. Thank you. I, I, I absolutely believe in them as power skills and they are not to be underestimated. Actually, uh, many reports show that the more proficient and uh, uh, skilled you are in these areas, the more productive and uh, a, a stronger team player you are, and hence your chances of succeeding in the job market are higher. How do you find the uh, the success rate of instilling or, or nurturing those essential power skills um, with teenagers or people in their early 20s, um, especially if they've come from uh, from a younger stage, from a background where that wasn't really nurtured, um, are you are you getting involved in, at an earlier level uh, with with people? Uh, well, our learners are typically between the ages of nineteen to uh, thirty-four uh, or five. Uh, so 50% of our learners are university students or recent graduates, maybe professionals joining also the uh, labor market. So uh, obviously assessments uh, are, are one of the uh, most critical and challenging aspects of verifying skilling, right? Because uh, mastery is, is uh, something that you cannot just, prove by taking a test because it could be just about rote learning and uh, doing that. So it takes time, it takes implementation. And oftentimes this does not happen on the platform. Uh, so we always try to, you know, keep in touch with our learners, send out surveys to understand where they are, uh, trying try to get some input on how they benefit from our courses. Uh, but with the skilling programs we are launching, they are pretty uh, new and nascent. So one of our uh, strategies um, that we are implementing right now is to track them over time, like three months, six months, nine months, 12 months after they graduate from our programs to better understand the impact of the program they have taken on the platform. And are these, um, are these courses focused primarily on these essential power skills, more uh, an introduction to frameworks or theories, or is it more practical exercises and learning by doing? Because a lot of these skills, like you said, um, the test, tests are not going to showcase whether somebody's emerged as a team player, 
in a six-week course, right? Or a good negotiator or a good a good communicator. Uh, I'm sure there are metrics for that, um, but it's really about doing the work. It's a lot, a lot of it is learning by doing. So how are some of these courses basically designed um, around that? So our uh, micro-credential program is designed to be an online boot camp uh, that lasts between four to six months and combines the technical skills with the soft skills. Uh, so our first pilot was around full stack web uh, full stack web development, and through this program, we uh, have several assignments uh, that are hands-on, uh, coupled with live webinars with experts. And it's a, it's pretty much a high-touch program. And then towards the end of the program, uh, after they are placed in cohorts, so they have their own TA, they have their own cohort working together, uh, reacting to each other's work. Um, and then towards the end, they apply a capstone project. So this is where we uh, are able to assess the kind of, you know, takeaways uh, that they can uh, showcase even when they graduate from the program, uh, especially when you talk about full stack web development. If you're able to develop a website, then you showcase that as part of your portfolio to demonstrate that you acquired the skill. Um, I meant over to you. Yeah, I actually uh, was interested when you mentioned that you personally after high school, you landed in a liberal arts uh, setting uh, at university before you specialized. And that's funny, it's, it's the same thing happened to me. I went to the US and I landed in a very liberal arts program, also in New York. And uh, it was a, such an eye opener for me. And I wanted to see if how your take, what your take is on liberal arts education as a philosophy and what it does to young people in terms of a, like you said, finding your path, what you're really passionate about, but also uh, instilling those skills of tolerance and teamwork and just an understanding of the world. And would you recommend it to anyone? And would you also, would you say it was a big contrast between where you came from, which was, which is from a, a very, an amazing high school in Jordan for gifted people, but I was, I'm assuming it was a very technical academic uh, structure versus the liberal arts structure. Yeah, so uh, obviously I, I was really happy with the way I was offered an expansive intellectual grounding, right? In, in my ability to sign up for courses in philosophy, in psychology, in management, in business. And after, because a lot of time when you are at high school, you study math, science and the, the the goal is different the exposure is different and you're not really thinking about the job market you're thinking how am I gonna get through so that I move on to the university level uh, at least that was the thinking during my time I feel like now there's more awareness there's more exposure and uh, the university promised all together itself uh, who says that you know we all need to have like a four-year degree in order to be able to demonstrate skills. And I think this is pretty much uh, um, an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to get exposed to different topics and meet different people from different cultures and interests and speak to uh, you know professors who have been in the space and provide some insights because I have never done a program on career counseling. So I didn't have a chance to either meet 
uh, experts or professionals in certain uh, domains or even have the exposure to an internship or a volunteering opportunity to do some work in a certain area. So when I was exposed to these uh, disciplines, I felt that, you know, my, my horizons were expanding so much that I was interested in putting even more time and effort and taking more classes than the load I should have because I was so intrigued. And then after two years, I finally realized that, you know, I want to do management, I want to do uh, communications, and this is something I'm passionate about. Uh, so I'm definitely a big fan of that system. And I think that it allows you some liberty, but at the same time gives you a structure where you, uh, you know, complete the, the it's, it's, it's a combination of the journey as well as the destination. Um, thank you for, for highlighting that, um, Ahmad, in your question. And um, I, I absolutely agree with you, particularly in the absence of career counseling. Uh, that was one of the missing pieces that kept on kept on uh, popping up in our research um, a few years ago for the Workforce Development Report. Um, and that gets me thinking about how you seek your users or your students or your the youth or whether they seek you, because um, it's uh, it's hard to know what you need when you don't know what's out there. Um, so uh, how do you how do you ensure that the youth cohort that you're attracting are actually the ones that you want to target because they don't have access to such um, platforms? Thank you. So it, it's both. Uh, primarily, learners seek certain courses on the IDRAQ, and there is so much more awareness today than there was, uh, you know, eight and nine years ago when it comes to online learning, especially after COVID that has accelerated the acceptance of online learning. And it has been pretty much our biggest advocate, honestly. Uh, it, it has you know, the, the speed of change is just something that uh, was incredible. So they pretty much look for certain courses and then they, they're directed to IDRAQ or they come across our social media uh, announcements or they hear about us from uh, friends. But at the same time, when we have uh, specialized programs, we do some uh, targeting in terms of uh, primarily digital marketing and through our partners. So at some point we used to uh, specifically work with partners working with refugees to leverage our content that was very useful uh, to the training programs they had. And at other times when we have uh, micro-credentials or like entrepreneurship courses, we speak with uh, centers that promote entrepreneurship and we try to always integrate ourselves in networks where our content can really make the biggest impact possible uh, because it does take a lot of time and effort to create these courses and uh, this is one of the perks of being a nonprofit organization right because otherwise maybe commercially it would not have made sense uh, to be able to do these programs but with uh, the backing of donors and partners who believe in the vision and the mission, we are able to curate all these resources and come up with these high quality programs uh, with the aim of achieving that impact. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's um, it's quite, as you said, it takes time and energy and effort to ensure that you're targeting these uh, these groups. Ahmad? Yeah, I was wondering about that, how, I mean, I know in entrepreneurship, a lot of the times uh, you'll have the market solve a problem with a for-profit enterprise. Um, but in your case, you're right, sometimes uh, the type of skills that need to be um, given, yani given out is not something that, that, that there's money in it. So you really need to have the, your structure. Uh, and you guys are an NPO, but you're, you're, are you're, and you're an NGO, right? Also, it's non-governmental still technically. It's a non-profit organization. And I think that uh, um, a, a big part of what we do and what makes us successful is that we are firm believers in the power of partnerships. And that's like a public-private civil society partnership where uh, resources can be combined and leveraged and strategic planning can take place to bring in all these players. Uh, because if you're talking about an ecosystem, then you need to make sure that youth are empowered through such partnerships that leverage you know, the governmental level, the public sector capabilities, combined with uh, some participation from corporates, uh, and then the individuals themselves and what you have, uh, what civil uh, society has to offer and building such ecosystem uh, gradually gets momentum and then more and more players come in the space, uh, the landscape becomes more mature, so it becomes even more feasible for others to join and uh, contribute. So uh, it does have a ripple effect. And I think that one of the key lessons learned uh, over the past years we've operated is that partnerships are key for success and scaling impact. Yes, I agree, especially as um, someone who's running a small program at the at a, uh, at a at a big think tank. It's all about partnerships and definitely um, gives us more reach and um, enriches the work that we do. Um, so uh, Idrak is entering its 10th anniversary next year. Uh, is it 10th? Is it 10th? Ninth anniversary. Okay. So yeah. as you, as you come closer to your first decade, um, what are the plans moving forward? Like where, where do you um, see Idrak sort of leaping forward. The pandemic definitely gave it uh, a lot more momentum and and uh, expanded your reach. Uh, but I guess, where do you see yourself with Idrak or where does Idrak see itself in the next five to six years? Uh, it's been definitely an exciting journey and we're always ambitious uh, about the years to come. I think it will be primarily focused primarily driven by focusing more and more on skilling and creating niche programs uh, that have the potential to provide uh, career pathways or uh, skilling pathways for youth to have better access to life opportunities. And we hope that through creating such programs, we will also play a role in 
uh, maybe when we talk about education reform, uh, in inspiring change when it comes to accreditation and recognition of online learning, uh, raising awareness among corporates that you know uh, lifelong learning is is uh, something that is essential for the development, not only of uh, the, not just the development, but also the survival and growth uh, of companies, but also the sustainability of uh, um, uh, the, the individuals engaging in societies or economies. Uh, and the reason I say that is because it's, it's you know, 50% of, according to F, 50% of the labor uh, force needs to reskill by 2025, and 40% of the workers' skill set will need to completely change in every five years. And I think that this window will even become shorter with the rapid change technology advancement industrial revolutions are bringing uh, about. So lifelong learning then becomes the cornerstone or the, uh, the the core of our ability to cope and keep you know keeping up with the constantly changing landscape of the workforce uh, and it's it, it's not going to be a luxury it's going to be an actual need for everyone governments uh, individuals um, because if, if you don't keep skilling then you'll become obsolete your access to opportunities will become less uh, as a corporate if your employees don't have the needed skills you will not be able to survive you will not be able to innovate or grow uh, so I think that you know uh, our vision would be to continue to grow these opportunities for lifelong learning and offer uh, micro-credentials and alternative credentials that can empower youth with the skills they need to prosper and contribute to better societies. Yes, that's an amazing goal to have the culture of uh, constant learning be part of uh, a community and part of the private sector, to be honest. I don't know what the numbers are, but as an employer myself, I can tell you that nowhere near, I mean, uh, just a very small minority of staff do training annually uh, or even much less some 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 people in the private sector have never had training in in their career in their mid career while they're working uh, i don't know if you have any data on that uh, in the for the private sector let's say in uh, in jordan i know you focus on 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 uh, um, the goals of people getting jobs but once they're in that job I don't know if uh, if the data is out on how many employ how, how many employees actually uh, get training during their career. Actually, this is why technology and online learning can help a lot because you can really have efficient solutions where the cost of units becomes pretty much very very efficient, uh, and it, it, you know you don't have to rent. Uh, a hotel room to conduct the training and cover all the logistics for it. It can be done anytime, anywhere. Uh, so it makes it really uh, feasible and uh, scalable uh, for companies to leverage e-learning. And that's why we're seeing a rise in all of the e-learning solutions aimed at uh, corporates and skilling in companies. That's a really good point, uh, Shirin, that you make, um, particularly as um, some of the feedback that uh, we received 
during our uh, focus groups and in-depth interviews for the workforce development report from the private sector, from employers, um, was very different from, from what Imad thinks as an employer in terms of the need for training. Um, many business owners don't think it's even their responsibility to um, skill or upskill or reskill. They think that this is something that the government should be tackling um, by reforming the education system. So, so uh, you're absolutely right. The e-solution um, or the e-learning component of skilling, particularly for the private sector, uh, probably should be amplified more so that more business owners think like Ahmad, like, yes, I want my staff to be improving and to be skilling and upskilling uh, because that will foster innovation and creativity and, and productivity will rise and it will benefit my business. But that's, again, a small minority of employers who are of that mindset. Um, so I'm at any, any last questions for, for Shireen before we ask her for her key lessons learned or words of wisdom? Yes, no, actually, I would love to. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to have, to have been speaking to you. I've always uh, been looking at Idraq as this um, excellent place of learning, excellent uh, endeavor. And I'm, I'm glad to have finally met the person who's, uh, who's heading it all. Um, yeah, please go ahead, Marissa. Ask, ask away. Yeah, so, so what we do with all our guests is we ask them about their key lessons learned throughout their journey um, uh, in the form of words of wisdom, you know, advice that you give to young people, particularly given your personal journey with um, education and how your experience opened your eyes to a whole new horizon. So what would you tell young graduates from high school, let's say? Uh, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity once again. And I'd say that, you know, education is absolutely the most important investment one can make in themselves. It's the one thing that nobody can take away from you, as they say. And it really constantly challenges you to uh, broaden your horizon and see things differently and adapt to change and uh, be resilient. Uh, to uh, to even th think how you can evolve yourself and come back from setbacks and develop new skills. Uh, I'd also say for female, like young females, that they really need to believe in themselves. And a lot of times in tech-driven uh, spaces where um, you know uh, males are probably uh, more dominant and uh, uh, more uh, present, uh, many females feel intimidated. They feel that this is not a space where I belong and this cannot be uh, true. Uh, today, we're seeing so many stories, inspiring women doing amazing uh, work in the tech space uh, and even in leadership. So uh, never have doubts and always believe that uh, you know, if you set your mind to anything, you can achieve it. Uh, in general, I'd also say that, um, you know, enjoy the ride. Try to always think of ways where you're uh, enjoying whatever you're doing and following your passion. Give yourself the opportunity to explore new ideas, uh, new things. And there isn't a linear 
path to success. It's pretty much a roller coaster, a complicated uh, path of ups and downs. And this is what makes us who we are ultimately. Uh, so always focus on the journey just as much as you keep your eyes on the destination. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shireen, for sharing your expertise and your experience and your story. Uh, best of luck with all the work that you're doing at, uh, at DRAC um, and uh, upwards and onwards or onwards and upwards, whatever comes first. <laughs> but best of luck and thank you. Thank you so much for having me and uh, I wish you all the best. I love uh, the podcast and I hope that you continue to do these episodes that inspire us all. Thank you. Thank you, Shireen. It was great having you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. This podcast is funded by a grant from the United States Department of State. The opinions, findings, and conclusions of this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Mm-hmm.